Thanks, band. Uh, welcome again to Hiawatha Church. We're glad that you are here, like Emily and, and Peter and others have said. Uh, we, yeah, we uh, are glad that you're here. Thanks for giving up a few hours of your day off, especially if you're a visitor. Uh, we are excited to have you uh, here at our church. Um, right now, uh, our lead pastor, who preaches most Sundays, is on a sabbatical. So he's been gone all summer. He's actually coming back. Uh, his sabbatical ends three, day, or three weeks from tomorrow. So he'll be back here pretty soon. But uh, throughout this summer, uh, a lot of people have asked, myself, the other elders, other staff, just how ministry has been going this summer without our fearless leader being here. And in general, we tell people it, it's actually been going really, really well. By God's grace, uh, logistically, we've had some challenges, but um, he's, he's helped us get, it, he's helped us, uh, get through that. Um, and, and just in general, we're really encouraged. And so thank you for all your prayers, praying for leadership, praying for my, uh, myself and my wife uh, over this time as well as just praying for the rest of our leaders and, and staff uh, throughout this summer. And we're excited to have Pastor Chris back in just a few weeks. But um, yeah, we just want to thank all of our leaders and staff that have worked really hard, tirelessly, uh, courageously, wisely over this summer to help uh, this summer go super well, despite not having Pastor Chris around. Uh, and relatedly, when I hear this question, when people ask, so how is ministry going? Uh, whether it's this summer or whether just in general, how is ministry going? I often think of this meme here. Who says ministry was stressful? I'm 35 and feel great. <laughs> and that's, that's what we're going to see in today's passage. We're going to see uh, the main character. So we're in the book of Acts, uh, which it takes place. It's like part two of right after Jesus' life. So the church is born. Jesus has died. He's raised from the grave. He sends his spirit into uh, the disciples and to people who follow Jesus, and the church is born. And then they send out this guy named Paul, and over the past uh, few months we've been seeing him. He's gone on multiple uh, global journeys where he's planting churches, often called his missionary journeys, and he's at the end of the second one right now. Uh, him and his crew, they've gone over 3,000 miles on this journey, and they had a first missionary journey even before this. And so uh, this guy, Paul, who uh, we've been seeing for the past uh, few months, and he's kind of the main character today, we're going to see that he's a lot like this character here. He is, he is beaten up. He is not smiling in today's passage. He's pretty discouraged. And uh, so we're going to see uh, how ministry has taken a toll, how church planting and travel and homesickness and health and persecution and option has really taken its toll on him. And so today we're going to look at uh, Acts 18, 1 through 17, which Louise read. And the title of today's sermon is Gospel Hope Amidst Discouragement in Ministry. So setting up our passage today, uh, how we got to Acts 18 is that Paul, the last city that he was preaching the gospel in, the last city where a church was born and, and set up and leaders were developed and people believed the gospel and they started gathering together, the last city was Athens, Greece. And so Jesse, one of our elders, preached on that last week. And uh, then after that, Paul leaves his church planning team, so actually sends uh, Timothy and, and Silas to a different part, and he goes alone now to this next highly influential city called Corinth. And so if we look at this new city, so we're in a new city almost every single week, and uh, 
Each city has its own benefits and its own challenges. And so we're in a new city this week. Paul, at the beginning of our passage, he's all alone. Uh, Silas and Timothy go back to Macedonia. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, And they're in this new city called Corinth. So Corinth was a Roman colony. It was the capital of its province. And it had a population of nearly 750,000. So it was an enormous, enormous ancient city. It was on the coast, and it was incredibly influential. Influential uh, economically, culturally, and politically. So uh, lots of trade went through here, lots of commerce uh, because of the, the shipping lanes. It was an enormous city, so culturally and politically it was, it was very, very influential. And they're also known for their immorality, especially their sexual immorality. So there's actually an, uh, an ancient phrase that they would use. Uh, speaking of Corinth, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Um, actually, that's not true. But they did actually have this one. Th- this is true. Uh, the, the phrase or the word that meant to live like a Corinthian, to live like a person from the city of Corinth, uh, came to mean uh, to live immorally. So that word soon became just shorthand for saying, oh, they live like a Corinthian. They live immorally. And it was something that they valued. So, so maybe kind of like Vegas or like other cities where they're proud of their immorality or proud of freedom to do what, what, whatever you want. This describes the city of Corinth. In the center of the city, there was a temple to Aphrodite. Uh, and there was in the city thousands of female slave priestesses uh, who would walk the streets of Corinth looking for worshipers. So you can just, uh, based on all that, kind of get a good read or good understanding about what the city of Corinth was like. And Paul comes to the city uh, to preach the gospel there. And so in this city, there actually was a large uh, synagogue. Um, so uh, if you remember throughout Acts, we've seen some cities. So we're actually quite far from Jerusalem, right? So this is Greece, modern-day Greece, also ancient Greece. So pretty far from Jerusalem. Yet uh, many of these cities we've seen actually do have synagogues in them. They have enough Jewish people in a particular city uh, where a synagogue can be. And so there is one here in the city of Corinth. Yet because Corinth is just so enormous, uh, the Jewish population, the synagogue, had very little influence on the city. So the culture of this city, this is important for us to understand, the culture of this city of Corinth was foreign to Judaism or foreign to the Old Testament, its customs, its morality, its view of God. And so uh, we, we sometimes use the language of, of unchurched to describe people groups. Uh, and so Corinth was not quite de-churched, meaning like they kind of knew about church but have chosen to reject it rather unchurched. They really had no idea who the God of the Old Testament was. They really have no idea who Jesus was, what Christianity, or for sure what Judaism was all about, but also Christianity. So this culture was just very unchurched. It was just very, it was a foreign language to them to even hear about anything with uh, having to do with the God of the Bible. And our city in general is becoming more and more like Corinth. We have less and less people in our city that grew up in the church, that uh, were confirmed, that went to VBS, that uh, know what the Bible's about, have read it, know Christians, things like that. So our city is becoming more and more like the city of Corinth in this way. So a lot of what we're going to see, what Paul does, is going to be applicable for us living in our city as well. So Paul goes to this new city, this new city of Corinth, and he intentionally goes to Corinth. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And when he arrives, he finds some believers, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, 
We're not sure that they were Christians when Paul met them, but we're pretty sure just based on how it's described here and how mature they are immediately. Um, so probably, uh, so these people are from Rome. They got kicked out of Rome when the, the ruler of Rome didn't want any more Jews there, so they got kicked out. Um, so they probably, some missionary or some person from one of the other church plants that Paul uh, started went to Rome and was sharing, and these guys believed. And so, uh, really great couple, Aquila and Priscilla. We're going to talk a lot more about them next week. They come up in next week's passage uh, even more, so we're just going to introduce uh, you to them this morning. They probably were quite wealthy and probably owned their own business, some leather-making business or a tent-making business, um, because later on we see throughout the New Testament, th- this couple together, they host the church in their home in, I think, four different cities. So throughout their lifetimes, they travel, whether for the sake of mission or their own business. And I think like Ephesus, Rome, here in Corinth, and then in another city, uh, the church is said to be meeting in their home. So they're wealthy. They have a large home where they can host dozens of people in their home, and they choose to use their wealth and their influence in order to uh, help the church spread. But we'll talk more about them uh, next week. But here we see Paul comes, he meets these new Christians, so he has friends immediately, and he also has a place to stay and employment. So he works with or for Aquila and Priscilla because Paul knows how to make tents, he knows how to work with leather, and so he can, uh, during the week, uh, have a job and make money and support himself, and then on the weekend he can go to the, the synagogues and preach. So Paul right now is bivocational, working on making tents to earn a living, and, and, and he intentionally does this to not be a burden on any of these people he's going to preach the gospel to. He wants to come into the city and say, not like other orators or like philosophers or teachers or rabbis that you have to pay me to hear my wisdom, but rather I want to come in and remove all these barriers so that you just hear the gospel. And many people get to hear the gospel. So he chooses here not to be a burden. He chooses to be bivocational. A tent maker is another uh, name for that we say sometimes. And then on the weekends, he goes to the synagogue to, per, to uh, persuade the Jewish people in the synagogue. And then it says Greeks too as well, but it's probably especially talking about Greek people who have converted to Judaism or at least are worshiping at the synagogue. So he goes there and he preaches and he tries to reason and persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus really is the Christ, this ultimate vi- victorious king that God promised would come and rule uh, the world. And you've also probably noticed, like I said, that uh, Paul is all alone here. So uh, for most of his journey, he has partners with him. He has a whole crew. He's got Silas and Timothy, and Luke was also with them uh, earlier on in this trip. So probably what happened, and uh, we, we, we picked this up from, so right now we're in the book of Acts. After the book of Acts in the New Testament, if you just open it up, it's letter after letter after letter after letter. Mostly, this guy Paul writing back to all these churches that he has planted. So as we read those letters, he talks about what, what's happening at that time and what happened in the past. So kind of putting all that together, we think probably what happened is that Paul, uh, when he was leaving Athens, he knew he was going to go into a new city. They were out of money, and so he sent Silas and Timothy back to Macedonia, which it says they, they came from Macedonia. He sends them back to these these new established churches in order to tell them, hey, our, our journey's continuing. We're going to Corinth. We want to preach the gospel there. Will you help? And uh, so Paul goes, 
Now to Corinth, works as a tent maker, makes his own money, and then eventually uh, Silas and Timothy show back up with money. We, we read at the beginning of uh, the book, or the letter written to the church in Philippi, so Philippians. At the beginning, Paul says, thank you for being so generous. Thank you for meeting our needs. Thank you for partnering with us as we spread the gospel. So that's probably what happens. So when in our passage today, it switches from Paul being bivocational and working most of the time and just preaching on the weekends, when Timothy and Silas show up, they probably come with a large gift of money from uh, the other churches so that Paul can do ministry full-time. So that's probably what is going on here. But just want to encourage you with that right now, uh, that Paul and, and, and many in the New Testament church are working as tent makers or are working bivocational or aren't getting paid for the ministry that they're doing. So if you're a Christian here today, you are a minister. You're called to do ministry. You're called to uh, share the gospel with people, help disciple others. So whether that's your children, whether that's uh, non-Christians in your neighborhood, whether that's uh, in a ministry that you lead here at the church or, or volunteer in, whether it's people in your community group, whether it's your, your classmates or your teammates or your spouse, whatever it might be, all Christians are called to ministry. And most, like Paul in this, uh, they, 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 in this part of the story, they just have regular jobs. They, they, and that's a great thing. And then when they have free time, or they minister to other people. And so uh, I just want to encourage us in that most Christians uh, are not getting paid to do ministry. Most Christians are like Paul and Aquila and Priscilla here in our passage. Let's keep on going. So, uh, Timothy and Silas arrive uh, in verse 5. So now Paul has the resources to teach and preach and reason, not just on the weekends, but he chooses, or he's able now, he has the resources to do it full time. So in verse 5 it says, Paul now testified to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And like we've seen in every single city that these guys have been in, so uh, many, many cities throughout the, the book of Acts, the gospel is proclaimed and we always have the same response or we always have the same responses. Some people receive it. Some people are curious by it and have questions and there is always opposition. There's always reception and there's always opposition. Like Jesse said last week in his sermon, this paradigm is how we should view ministry, how we should view sharing the gospel with our neighbors, our friends, our family, our coworkers. It happened to Jesus and his ministry. People received his message, people were curious, and people rejected. It's happening to Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and everyone in the book of Acts, and that will also be our story, both uh, individuals and as a church. People will hear the gospel and love it and receive it. People will hear the gospel and be kind of curious about it or intrigued by it, and people will hear the gospel and reject it, and it will actually be bad news to them. So while opposition, rejection, and persecution are not fun, Right? We don't want it to happen. It will be our reality, our reality as a church and our reality as individual Christians. We pray that everyone who hears the gospel will receive it. And we know that God loves everyone and that God desires everyone to repent and to believe in him. And at the same time, the reality is many will reject him. It happened to Christ, happened to the early church, and it will be our reality as well. So we must... Uh, we must know that rejection and opposition and persecution will be a part of our future. Our worldview, our reality, our values, the gospel itself is offensive. So just like Paul and Aquila and Priscilla, we also can uh, expect opposition and 
rejection. So right now, let's just realize that. Let's remember that, and let's not lose hope. You will this week share the gospel in word or deed to someone. They won't receive it. We as a church will have people that will reject the gospel as they hear it from our stage or from our mouths or from our ministries or from our outreach. And so as a church, we need to know we desperately want them to believe. We pray that everyone will believe, yet we don't completely lose hope when it doesn't happen because people can choose and many do reject. So let's be encouraged in that. Let's also not put so much burden on ourselves to think that we're the ones that save people, that it's about our great missional living or that our incredible generosity and kindness or our brilliant evangelism or our wonderful missional living saves people. Let's not think that. Let's take that burden off ourselves as if we're the ones that save people and remember that only Jesus saves. So we see here in this city that the gospel is preached. Some are curious. Some definitely reject. There's opposition. But like we also see in every city, the Holy Spirit moves and the gospel saves many. All different kinds of people, Jews and Greeks, even people who are, are leading in the synagogue come to faith Verse 8 ends with, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So amidst opposition in a sinful city, a church is born. Many believe and are baptized. And these new believers, through their baptism, now publicly declare a new allegiance. A new allegiance to the risen Savior, to Jesus Christ. They declare a new allegiance that's not to Aphrodite or to Zeus or Apollo, nor allegiance to Rome or Corinth or Caesar, but to the risen and reigning Christ, the only one that deserves our allegiance, Jesus the Messiah. Yet, even though it seems like in some ways things are going really great in this city, and obviously there are, uh, for the first uh, real time we see huge discouragement that Paul goes through, which is uh, very normal, yet we have maybe, we just think of Paul as like this Superman, right? We've seen him throughout uh, the book of Acts doing incredible things that uh, no one else has, has done. And so um, in this kind of real moment where we see Paul super discouraged, where we see him even want to give up, where God has to literally step in in a vision and audibly say, Paul, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't fear. So we get a kind of a look into Paul's discouragement in uh, ministry here. This same guy, he's the guy that's been stoned, beaten, driven out of nearly every city he went into. He's been betrayed, unjustly treated in the courts. He's had his own people, his own ethnic family, uh, mock him, ridicule him, slander him. And he's had violent oppression and opposition in nearly every city that he's ministered in across the ancient world. So we might think of him as Superman or as, you know, some type of hero. But here in chapter 18, here in Corinth, we see Paul's humanity. We see his weakness. And we see his discouragement. And not only does he seem to want to give up trying to reach his ethnic family, right? He shakes off his, the dust off his clothes and says, I've had it with you. I've had it with my, my Jewish family. They just reject Jesus over and over again. I'm going to the Gentiles. Not only does Paul do that, but we also see that God has to speak to him directly to kind of snap him out of this or to give him the encouragement that he needs so he doesn't give up. When Paul actually, uh, years later, he writes letters back to this actual church, the, the New Testament books of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So if you want to even learn more about the craziness of 
the city of Corinth. Read those books. There's some wild uh, PG-13 rated R stuff uh, in what's going on in this city and church. But when Paul writes back to them, he, he describes this is how he came to the city of Corinth. This is what was going on in his heart and his mind. He writes back to the, the church there and he says, And I, Paul, when I came to you, brothers, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So Paul's broken. He's discouraged. He wants to give up. Even Paul gets discouraged. No one is immune to discouragement. Maybe that's really good news for you right now because you're discouraged a lot with ministry, with raising your kids, with leading a community group, with uh, trying to talk to your, your coworkers or your classmates or your teammates about the gospel. So maybe this is good news to you that, that even Paul gets discouraged in ministry. Even Jesus himself was discouraged with the crowds, with the religious people, and even with his disciples, his own followers. So we're not really sure why Paul gets here. It could be many things. It could be health problems, homesickness. It could be burnout in ministry. It could be all this opposition he's facing. It could be loneliness. It could be being in this new city surrounded by so much evil without his close uh, friends, uh, Silas and Timothy. It could be unique spiritual attack. It could be temptation of sin or all of those things or, or a bunch of those things. And it is in this incredibly dark moment that Paul has that the Lord shows up to him and comforts him. Verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So God graciously, supernaturally steps in and says, Paul, I've got you. Don't be afraid. I am here with you. Despite the opposition and the loneliness and the hardships that you are facing, I am here with you. And it is out of this truth that the God of the universe is with him, that the God of the universe is behind Paul. It is because of his great promises that Paul receives that the Lord tells him, don't stop teaching. Don't stop speaking. Don't stop preaching. Don't give up, Paul. And not only that, but he promises him that there's many in this city that will believe. He promises that he will not be uh, attacked in this city, that he can preach fearlessly knowing that at least in Corinth he's not going to get beat up or stoned or, or some other type of violent opposition. God graciously in this time of Paul's discouragement gives him a promise of at least uh, a season of protection and safety. And it is out of this specific call for Paul to keep speaking the gospel in Corinth that God tells him there will be a church in Corinth, that God will save people in this city. And we must notice how Paul responds. So God says, Paul, there will be people that respond to the gospel. There will be people that receive and believe the gospel. A church will be born in this city. And notice how Paul responds. Does he say, hey, that's great news. That means I can stop working for a year and a half. Or God's sovereign, so it'll just happen. I can sit on my hands. Or since God promised that it will happen, that people will hear the gospel and believe, that I can finally take this vacation. Or just take a break from all this ministry and preaching and evangelism and teaching. Is that how Paul responds when he hears a promise? There will be spiritual fruit. There will be salvation. There will be conversion. No, the opposite, right? When Paul hears that it will happen, his response is, okay, then I better get to work. God wants to use me. There will be spiritual fruit, and God chooses to bring about faith 
through people evangelizing, people telling people the gospel. We've seen this over and over and over and over in the book of Acts. God is the one who saves. We don't earn it. He is behind it. He gives it graciously. We aren't so special that we deserve it. God is the one who saves. And the way that he chooses to save people is through other Christians sharing that message. Through the church preaching the gospel and demonstrating the gospel. God could do it via dreams. He could do it, uh, he could have written it in the sky. He could have done it through visions. He could have sent it through angelic messengers. He could have done it through like secret code or, or some hidden ideas that only the smart who meditate and think really great uh, and deeply on it could figure it out. But he doesn't. The way that nearly everyone is saved is through someone sharing and proclaiming and teaching the gospel. Whether big or small, informal or formal, God chooses to use his people as the means in which other people hear the gospel and are saved. It's both, and it's always been. God alone saves, and he chooses to use other Christians declaring the gospel to bring about that salvation. We've saw it all over the book of Acts. Just a couple places we'll be reminded of really quick. Acts 13, 48 says, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Right? So God's behind it. God's the one that is appointing people to eternal life, appointing them to be saved and to believe. And we see people are choosing to believe. People are seeing this good news and, and receiving it. They're responding to it. Acts 16, 14 says something similar. Speaking of uh, this really important character uh, named Lydia, it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So behind the curtain, what we don't see is that God is behind Lydia's salvation. He's opening her heart and her eyes to be able to, to see and receive and respond to the gospel. And Lydia sees and believes and responds to the gospel. The ESV Bible helps summarize these two ideas that seem to be at odds, that, that are just hard for us logically to wrap our minds around. God is sovereign, and in the election and the salvation of his people, God is behind it, and humans have true and real responsibility to respond. Both of those are taught over and over again in Acts and throughout the Bible, but how do those two things kind of go together? The ESV uh, study Bible kind of helps us with this. Though God had told Paul, I have many in this city who are my people, indicating that many in Corinth would come to faith in Christ, this did not lead Paul to conclude that he had no further part to play. Rather, Paul stayed a year and six months, longer than he stayed at any city except Ephesus, preaching the gospel in order that through his preaching, those whom God had chosen would come to faith. Predestination implies successful evangelism. So unlike any other, nearly any other city that Paul was in, Paul chooses to stay 18 months. He knows God is going to do something and that God is going to use him and the church to do it. So despite his great encouragement, Paul stays 18 months in this city because he knows that God's doing something, that he will save many. And there are a number of reasons that Paul cho chose to stay. One of those, we just said, Paul chooses to stay because he knows that there will be spiritual fruit. He knows that through the gospel proclamation in Corinth, many would be saved. And Paul also stays there for a long time too, like it says here, to teach the word of God among them. 
Paul knew that this group of people were young to the faith. Like we said earlier, this was not uh, uh, many, many Jewish people that are coming to faith, that know the Old Testament, that have been anticipating the Messiah coming and all that that entails, but rather most in this city have never even heard of Jesus before, have never even heard of the Old Testament or the God of the Bible or the sacrificial system or the Passover lamb or, or uh, all these other things that the Old Testament speaks to that the Jewish people would see Jesus as being the answer too. So Paul knows that he has to stay a long time in order to teach the word of God among them. Uh, also remember, Paul shook off the dust off of his clothing uh, with regards to the Jews in Corinth. Most of the Jews in this city had rejected the gospel. So based on that, as well as Paul staying a long time, based on what we read in First and Second Corinthians and how long those letters are to this church, we can just understand that this church was made up of lots of newly converted uh, people, especially uh, pagans from the city of Corinth, not Jewish people. And like we saw in our introduction to this city, Corinth was filled with all kinds of proud pagan immorality and people that loved being far from God. So in other words, this is how it gets really practical and helpful for us. So in general, not always the case, but most of the time, in general, discipling someone who knows nothing about Jesus, the Bible, the gospel, or church life is going to take more time than someone who grew up in the church. So really profound statement right there. So someone who's brand new to the faith, never heard of the Bible or Jesus or never experienced church life, it's going to take them longer to grow and to mature and to be sanctified in general than someone who grew up in the church. And we're seeing this here in Corinth, the church that's now full of, of Gentile Corinthian people, that's not full of Jewish people. And we see, we're, yeah, we're seeing how this plays out and the importance that uh, Paul sees in him staying for a long time. So this is a great word for us as a church. So let me share how this is, gets really practical for us, especially if you consider Hiawatha Church your home, especially if you're a member here and have said, I am 100% in with the mission of our church. I, I want to be a part of the solution. I want to sacrifice for the sake of helping Hiawatha meet her mission, which is to spread the gospel here in our city and beyond. So this is how it plays out here in our lives. Here how it's really practical. So for us as a church, all the areas of our church life, our church, our community groups, our, our classes that we teach, our kids' ministry, our youth, they're all going to be filled with not just broken sinners who are saved by grace that are becoming more like Christ through the Holy Spirit, right? They, they are filled with that. That's called a Christian, right? A sinner that's saved by grace, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But not only that, but our church, our community groups, our youth group, our classes, our HLI, our everything we do will also be filled with people who are not Christians yet. People who are just checking out the faith. People who have doubts. People who have questions. People who are maybe intrigued a little bit by Jesus or his teachings or maybe the church or maybe community yet aren't a Christian, which is great. Or maybe they are believers, but they, are, they never grew up in the church. So maybe they love Jesus and they've accepted the gospel and they want to be a part of Hiawatha or your community group or the ministry that you're leading, yet they never grew up in the church. So they don't know all the things that Christians do, like commit to a community group or take communion or forgive others. And so that's just going to be our 
reality. If we're a church that wants to reach people who don't know Jesus in our city, that's just going to need to be a reality. Our church is going to be filled with people who are checking out the faith, who have doubts, who aren't Christians yet, but are still kind of around us. And that's great. Let me, from the stage, remind us that is a win. That is great. That's what we want our church to be, a safe place where people who aren't Christians can come and hear about Jesus. This is our goal. We want unchurched and dechurched people to feel at home at Hiawatha Church. And by God's grace, many, many of them do and have throughout our history. So unchurched and dechurched, not negative terms at all, just, you know, uh, sociologists describe people uh, in this type of language. So dechurched people who kind of have some connection to Christianity, they, they maybe know a little bit about the Bible or a little bit about Jesus. And then unchurched people, just people who have no idea. They've never read the Bible before. They don't know who Jesus is. They've only been to a handful of services uh, ever in their whole life. This is what we want. Our goal as a church is we want people from all over the place to feel welcomed here at Hiawatha. So if this is, if this is you here today, if I'm describing you, just know that you're welcome here. And to be really clear, you're not just welcome as if, okay, we'll let you come in, but we don't want you here, but we have to because Jesus said it. So you're welcome, but not wanted. But we want you here. We want you here. You're not bothering us because you have questions. You're not annoying us because you have doubts. We want you here. It's okay that you're just learning about Jesus and the gospel for the first time. And while we're not perfect as a church at this, we want to make our church uh, be a safe place where you can ask questions, where you can have doubts, where you can disagree. Obviously, Sunday mornings, we don't pass the mic and say, okay, who disagrees? Who wants to say something contrary to this? But our, our greater, our, uh, the whole of Hiawatha Church, not just Sunday mornings, but all of our ministries and other places we gather or before and after services or would love to get coffee with you, many different ways and places. We want this to be a safe place where you can ask questions, where you can wrestle with tough things where you don't have to put on a face or a mask and pretend like uh, you're someone else. Hiawatha Church is a place where you can belong before you believe. A place that you can call home. We have had people that aren't Christians come to Hiawatha for years and years and even uh, volunteer trying to make, they, they disagree with what we teach and they think Jesus is kind of intriguing but made up but they still are attracted to something here. Whether it's Christian community, whether it's the idea of grace, whether it's uh, what the gospel leads to, the love and the good deeds that they see, whatever it might be. You can belong here even before you believe. Just know that. You can take our classes. You can join our community groups. You can participate in Sunday mornings and receive as you seek truth and meaning alongside us. And for us as a church, so now I'm speaking to Hiawatha Church people here, especially those of you who are members who have said, I'm committed. I, I want to be about this. Let me know how I can help. I want to deny myself and I want to sacrifice for the sake of Hiawatha meeting the mission God has given us. Let me speak to those people for a second. If that's not you, you can uh, tune out for about 90 seconds here. But we as a church, Hiawatha, we need to realize and be okay with the reality that our church is going to have many, many people who aren't Christians among us. Discipleship and spiritual growth take time, right? Especially with people who are unchurched or who haven't been around the church before. And we just need to know that that is going to be our reality. We need to be okay with that. We need to see that as a win and desire that. 
So that means that not everyone sitting next to you on a Sunday morning will be the most Christ-like person in the world. They might be a little rude to you or, or not say hi, or you might have people in the church that let you down. You, you will, if you stick around long enough, someone will sin against you. They will hurt you. And that's not good. We don't want that to happen. But the reality is, if our church is filled with not only sinners saved by grace, Christians, but also people who are just checking out Christianity, we just need to know that's going to be our reality. And see that as a win. And be okay with that. And to not just come to church thinking only about me, me, me. If we want to reach our unchurched city, we must be a church that is patient, kind, gracious, slow to anger, understanding, and empathetic. If we want to be a church that reaches people that weren't raised in, Christians home, in Christian homes and to reach people who have never read the Bible before, which is the majority of our city and it's growing and growing, if we want to reach those type of people, we need to be a church where Christians are constantly fighting against consumerism, constantly fighting against our own self-focus and our personal preferences. We need to be a church filled with members who show up on Sunday morning not only thinking about themselves and what they want and what they are going to get out of it. Notice, notice too, with Paul here, he doesn't run away from this sinful, immoral city. Maybe this was the most evil city that he's been in in these two journeys. And maybe that's why he's so discouraged he wants to quit. But notice, he intentionally goes to Corinth. Right? He doesn't go to Ephesus. He doesn't go back to another city that, he, that he's been to. He intentionally goes to this city. He doesn't run away from sinful people or from people who are unchurched and don't know the Bible and don't know God. He doesn't run away to a monastery to just hang out with other really smart, committed Christians away from all the evil. First of all, monasteries didn't exist back then, but the point is that he didn't do that, right? His, his, his uh, posture towards the unbelieving world was, I'm going to move towards you. I care about you. I'm going to absorb you sinning against me and you offending me for the sake of me eventually sharing the gospel with you. When Paul saw this, this immoral city that even boasted about being immoral, he knew the importance of it. It was incredibly influential and that a church started in this city would have great influence around the ancient world. He also looked at this city and saw 750,000 people who were made in the image of God and that had incredible worth and that people who Jesus loved and died for. So he didn't give up on unchurched people, but he moved towards them. Paul knew that the gospel always bears fruit, even amidst great sin and hard hearts. Paul knew that the Spirit was powerful enough to save people who didn't want God, who weren't looking for him, and were even his enemies. And so Paul puts down roots and stays in the sinful city for 18 months. So for us as a church, Hiawatha Church, if you call this church your home, if we want to meet the mission that God has given us to reach our city, one thing we have to do is show up on Sunday mornings not only thinking about what do I get out of this? What do I want? What, what are my preferences? And then be upset when it doesn't happen. If we want to reach our city, we can't do that. And then expand that also to the community group that you're a part of, the ministry that, uh, that you're a part of or receiving from, the classes that you're taking, the outreach that you are doing here with our church. We cannot show up and say and only think about what do I get out of this. And obviously, of course, 
you're going to get good things, right? Of course, you're going to be encouraged by the worship and the preaching and the communion and the fellowship and all of our ministries. We're not saying the Christian life is, is all suffering, but we are saying we need to fight intentionally against this consumerism and self-focus that we are so tempted to have. If we really want to reach our city with the greatest news our city has ever heard, one thing we must do is come to our gatherings or our community groups or our classes, whatever, our outreaches, ready to look towards the needs of others, ready to give up our own preferences and wants and even needs for the sake of others, which includes visitors and people who are just checking out the faith, all of which reminds us of Christ, right? Who denied his own wants and desires and preferences, even his own rights in order to become like us, in order to become like humanity in which he was trying to reach. And by God's grace, I'm speaking to us as a church right now, by God's grace, we have historically been really good at this. The Spirit has, has moved in our hearts, has given us a love for our city, a love for others, to be not just welcoming, but actually tell people, we want you here. We're not just putting up with you. We actually like your questions, and we like that you're here, and we, we like that you're trying out something that's probably strange and kind of scary for you. So thanks for being here. But let's continue with this Hiawatha Church. Let's encourage each other to keep doing this more and more and to ask the Spirit to grow and mature us in this so that we can reach our city, the greatest news our city has ever heard. Okay, back to Paul as we kind of wrap up here. So Paul stays in the city for the longest time he has uh, in any, any city except for Ephesus, discipling these young believers, strengthening this young church. And as we wrap up here, let's look at uh, ways that God provides for us in uh, ministry, whether we have discouragement or opposition. And let's look at how God does that via how God, did, how God does this for Paul here in Acts 18. So the first thing we see, so when you are discouraged in ministry, right? When you are in a part of a community group and people are hurting you or discouraging you, whether, you, uh, whether it's a Sunday morning thing or it's, you know, uh, trying to share the gospel with people in your life, whether it's your family, whether it's the ministry you're serving in, maybe you're teaching kids ministry downstairs and they just won't listen. Whatever it might be, all of us, if we're Christians, we do ministry and there's discouragement in it. Notice and remember these things that will encourage us amidst, amidst discouragement. First is that God provides great stuff for us during this. He does not leave us alone. First, uh, he gives us ministry partners in the church. With Paul, today we saw initially God gives him Aquila and Priscilla. We're going to see throughout the story, and if you read the rest of the New Testament, these people were incredibly helpful and influential for Paul. And he also gets a church, right? People convert, and he has a spiritual family eventually in this city. And we have the same thing as well. We're given ministry partners. Most of us are not doing ministry all by ourselves all the time. Maybe we have fellow leaders with us. Maybe we have other Christians in our workplace or in a ministry we're a part of. Or maybe we have our spouse that's helping us do ministry in our homes with our kids, whatever it might be. And not only that, but we're given the church. We're not called to do ministry alone. We have brothers and sisters that remind us of the gospel and back us up. Secondly, there is the power of the gospel. Right, that encourages us. Just like Paul knew that the gospel would produce fruit, that people would be saved when the gospel is preached over and over again, we too. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for people to believe. God promises people will believe, and so Paul continues to preach. 
And so in our ministry, whatever that might look like uh, to you today or for you today, believe in the power of the gospel. It's not because you're a great minister or a great teacher or really smart or funny or a great leader or really kind or hospitable. That's not what's going to lead to spiritual fruit and sanctification in the people you're ministering to. Trust in the power of the gospel. Not in your charisma, not in your wit, not in your experience. Trust in the power of the gospel to have fruit. Third thing that God uses to encourage us amidst discouragement is in ministry is, is the power of the Holy Spirit to use weak people. The power of the Holy Spirit to use people, even weak people. Again, we're often th- we often think Paul was a superstar, right? Like most of the book of Acts, he's doing unthinkable things. But the reality is, and we see it here in this passage, and when he writes back to Corinth, we see that Paul was just a broken, imperfect, fearful sinner, just like us, but who was used by a powerful, perfect God. Paul knew his weakness actually throughout his ministry. Even when he writes back to the Corinthians, he reminds them that they weren't saved because he was brilliant. They weren't saved because he was a really persuasive evangelist. Actually, when he writes back to them, we read this first verse here, but let's continue. Paul writes back to this church and he says, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I was terrified. I wasn't good at this. Verse 4, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So I wasn't brilliant. I wasn't persuasive. I wasn't funny. That's not why you chose to believe the gospel. But I came actually in weakness, which demonstrated the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. And why did, why did God have him like this? Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul, in his ministry here in this city, he says, this is how to describe it. Paul, weak, Holy Spirit, powerful. And that's why you're saved, not because Paul's a great person, Corinthian church, but because the Spirit is powerful and the gospel is beautiful. Relatedly, God uses all of his people. If you're a Christian here today, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and you've been gifted with spiritual gifts. And in your weakness, he wants to be powerful. He wants to use you in ways that you think you could not do. And maybe you couldn't do, or actually you couldn't do, but from the Spirit being inside of you. And in doing all of this, it demonstrates that Christians aren't special. We just serve a great God. So when looking at Paul's ministry throughout Acts, we're going to see even more crazy stuff. Shipwrecks happening, getting bit by poisonous snakes and not dying. We're going to see some even more great stuff that Paul does. So when we read what we have read in the book of Acts, when we continue to read, we should not look at Paul and say, oh man, I could never do that. That's impressive. I could never do that. As if we're, you know, watching a great musician, or, you know, watching Monica sing and like, oh, I could never do that. Or watching LeBron James play basketball. Oh, I could never do that. When we see Paul do all this crazy stuff, we should not think, I could never do that. But rather, we should be thinking, look out how powerful and amazing our God is. That he uses such a moron, such a weakling, such a coward in order to spread the gospel across the ancient world. Look at our powerful and amazing God who uses a weak, discouraged, imperfect man in these types of ways. And finally, we're reminded that God won't 
leave us. In one of the darkest moments of Paul's life and ministry, he needs to be reminded, even audibly, through a vision, that God hasn't left him, that God is with him. And he isn't going anywhere. For Paul, this means things like he literally was protected. Like at the end of our passage today, there was this huge fight in, in, the, in the tribunal, and Paul doesn't get hurt. He could, you know, the, that uh, Galileo guy could have, you know, thrown Paul in prison, could have beaten him, like happened in many other of the cities. But God protects him in that. And we see that play out at the end of our passage. And for us, who are discouraged in ministry all the time, it's a great reminder for us that God is with us. No matter what hardship, what suffering, what apathy the people that we're trying to minister to have towards us in the gospel, no matter what opposition we have or discouragement comes our way in ministry and in life, we will never be abandoned. Our God is always with us. He was with Paul here and reminded of, of, of that through this vision, and he's reminding us that today through Acts 18. In Hebrews 5, uh, 13 as well, we read, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, church, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So let's, let, let that be our prayer and our hope today. Let's put our full hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and let this be our prayer that God is with us. He is our helper when we are weak. He will never forsake us. That he loves us deeply. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, this great news, this encouragement that we receive uh, through this narrative, through this true event that happened across the world 2,000 years ago. God, we thank you for your great love for us that we see played out, uh, demonstrated, spoken about, preached about here in Acts 18. God, we pray you would encourage us. Help us as a church uh, to be a church that loves uh, our city, that loves people different than us, which reflects a God who loves people that were his enemies, people that didn't care about him, people that rebelled against him and were far off from him. So God, give us love for each other. Give us love for our city and help us to see ourselves in uh, people who aren't believers yet, to, to not look down on them with arrogance or pride or disdain but rather see ourselves in them, sinners saved by grace, people who are, are, are lost and people who are in, in need of the gospel and to be reminded of uh, who they are and who Jesus is and to repent and to believe in that. So God, we pray for the rest of our service as we uh, see and participate in the gospel demonstrated through the Lord's Supper, through communion, and as we worship you through song and, and fellowship and gather with other believers. God, we pray that you would encourage us in this good news that you love us to hell and back, that you died in our place, so that if we trust, if we believe in you, we will be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.